Hello, and welcome to the second chapter. I'm your host, Kristen Duffy. This week's guest will be joining me shortly, but first, I wanted to let you know through the month of January, I'm sharing more 2023 advice and goals from guests who joined me in 2022. Here's Judith Keyes passing along some great advice about looking back with pride and what she's adding for 2023. Hi, my name is Judith Keyes, and I run My Food in France and my best friend in France. You can find both groups over on Facebook. Come and join us. Um, I wanted to share my best piece of advice that I've been given uh, for 2023, and it was to review my achievements from 2022. So someone gave me this amazing link. It was a good friend of mine to a website called yearcompass.com. And in that, there is a booklet that you can download for free and you can fill in all about, it's all a guided notebook, all about what you did in 2022 and how you want to uh, foresee 2023 and what you would like to do in the year ahead. And I have spent some time working my way through the booklet and I'm absolutely loving it. Thinking back to my achievements in 2022 has made me realise just how much I've done for a start. It's made me have a feeling of pride in what I have accomplished. And also it's made me realise the gaps in, um, you know, it's made me realise what was missing from my year, which I didn't necessarily notice as I was going through it. So one of my New Year's resolutions is to inject a little bit more fun and joy. And it has been hard to do that with two very small children this past year. But I am determined to add some more joy and fun into 2023. And I think we're all in need of a little bit of that going forward. So I wish you the best fun and joy in this year to come. I hope it is an amazing one. All the best. This week, I'm speaking with Christine Errico. Christine was born with a cleft lip and palate and spent much of her life feeling bullied, alone, and in denial. We speak about her various career and life changes and how she found the confidence to leave an abusive marriage, speak up about her cleft, and start advocating for and coaching others with birth differences. This is where I'm meant to be. This is my path, my destiny, is to give back in that way. Advocacy work to share my story and to help support and strengthen others. And to share what I've learned about building my own confidence and building my own voice and figuring out who I am. Hi, Christine. Thanks for joining me today. How are you? I'm doing great, Christine, and thank you for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you. I love your story and I loved your TEDx talk and I can't wait to help you spread the word and to really raise awareness about cleft affectedness. <laughs> but before we get into all of that, how are you doing? We were just talking about the holidays. By the time this comes out, the holidays will have passed, but what's your plan? I'm doing great. I'm really excited about the new year, continuing to grow my business and just help raise awareness and my advocacy work for Blackfoot and Pilot. So I'm doing really good. I'm at a really great point in my life. And I was just thinking today how happy I felt and what a difference it is from years ago and growing up. Yeah. And definitely hearing some of your stories, which of course we'll share with listeners in a moment, but I just can't believe some of the things that you've been through for something that, you know, something that you were born with. And there's many times I look back and I can't believe the obstacles that I've overcome and the challenges I've encountered as well. 
And it just reminds me that we're all given the strength to get through whatever is crossed our way and whatever we have and that we can get through it. So let's go back a little bit to, well, to the beginning, pretty much. <laughs> I know that you were born with cleft lip and palate mm-hmm. and that your first surgery was around two months old. Yes. So tell us about cleft lip and palate and some of the surgeries that you went through growing up. So a cleft lip and palate happens when the lip or palate or both do not properly form before birth. So this creates a gap from the upper lip that extends into the nose and sometimes the palate, as it did in my case. As a result, eating, drinking, even breathing was very difficult until I had the lip and the palate closed. So, I'm not to get too technical, but in science or science, but when the fetus is formed, we're actually formed as two halves that eventually come together and meld together. So, when a baby born with a cleft lip or a palate, their face does not properly meld together. And the gap. Two months old, I had the first surgery and that was to close the lip and to start to take the notes so at least I can start breathing and then nursing properly. A couple of months later, I had another surgery to start to repair the palate and then just throughout my life, I've had more than 20 surgeries to shape the lip, shape the nose, repair the palate, close the palate some more. I had two bone grafts where they took bone from either hip. The first one was when I was six years old because I had no bone in my upper jaw. They put the bone there so that at least it would give me some structure for the upper lip. My second bone graft was when I had dental implants. Because the first bone dissolved over the years. So when I was 27, I had my second bone graft so that they could do dental implants. So I always jumped on never be able to wear a bikini because I have scars on my hip. <laughs> I think for good reason. One of the things that you mentioned in your TEDx talk is that you weren't even able to, and you said you alluded to not being able to nurse properly, but mm-hmm. not being able to drink from a bottle or breastfeed. So before the two months, was it something that you were constantly on an IV or how did, how? that sounds like such a silly question, but how were they feeding you at, at that point? That's a great question. Because I didn't have the proper lip structure, I couldn't use, you know, my mother's breast as a normal baby would. So she would have to give me a bottle by having me sit upright and then tilting the bottle and squeezing it in my mouth. Uh, fortunately, nowadays they have special nipples that are attached to the bottle. So that parents with a child who has a cleft lip, I think there's special nipples that are called Dr. Browns. And they basically work on the reverse suction that pushes the milk through the nipple at a slow rate so that the baby won't tilt rather than just forming it in as my mother had to do. So there was always the risk of choking. My mother often said a couple of times she was worried about me choking to death. A couple of times she said I did turn balloons just from a liquid going down my windpipe instead of my throat. So I can only imagine how scary it must have been for her as well. But that was how she had to nurse me until at least my palate closed and she was able to no, had to nurse me dripping the formula of the milk into my mouth, but at least it wasn't a big of a risk of the formula coming out my nose. So with all the surgeries and everything, I know in addition to that, kids being not aware and a mm-hmm. part of the awareness we're talking about is making people more aware, but both kids and adult, you got a lot of bullying, you had a lot of name calling. What was life like outside of all these surgeries? Did you feel like you were getting to have a childhood? Honestly, no, because my, my until I was about 12 or 13, my childhood was surgeries, dentist appointments, outdoor appointments, or speech therapy. 
So at the school, it was always something going on, either a doctor appointment to general pediatrician, plastic surgery, to see how the lip was doing, or a consult for an upcoming surgery, or a dentist, because I started wearing braces at about like my old childhood. So I don't that I much spent half of my life in the dentist chair or speech therapy. I had speech therapy until I was about in my third year of high school. So probably about 16, 17, I had constant speech therapy. No, I feel like I had a childhood, even though my mother tried to make it as much of a childhood as possible. I was active in Girl Scout. And I have a sister. I remember we played video games. We'd watch that and one of cartoons, but it was still not quite a normal childhood as any other one, any other child would have. Yeah. And then the bullying on top of it, I'm sure, made meant that the time out of school was all of these appointments, but the time in school couldn't have been very pleasant either. Uh, no, the time in school was actually brutal with the bullying. I was constantly bullying from the day I would in the morning. I would arrive in school until I would leave school for the day, especially at recess, lunch hour, even between classes. Just called me names at recess. Nobody would play with me. They were either afraid of me or they didn't want to be seen with me because then they would get you know, bad reputation. So I was very much alone, but I've also learned to build a thick skin and to cope with everything. I just buried my emotions. I pretended it didn't bother me. I pretended I didn't hear them and I just denied and buried it all. And that was the one coping mechanism that got me through my childhood was that denial. I just did have somebody on the podcast that we were talking about the old sticks and stones may break my bones thing and how, in a way, words are so much more painful because bones can heal, but all of that pushing everything inside. I feel like I'm going to get emotional because I just think about you and all of us as children, but especially in your case, just pushing things down and that kind of healing takes so much longer. (laughs) Definitely does. Like you said, you know, when you have a bone that breaks, and I've, I've had a broken bone, it does heal, and you move past it. But the bullying and the name calling, to me, that affected myself, what it affected who I was. And I began to accept it as an identity almost. And I am a monster. I'm not going to never amount to anything. They were right that, you know, the names that they called me. Yes, name calling is really much more painful and much more difficult to recover from because it does affect your psyche and how you see yourself. and what you tell yourself. So I always, that's why I'm a big advocate against bullying as well. And even adults, I know it was more because you were out of school so much with various surgeries and mm-hmm. things. But I know that one of your teachers said something about you'd never amount to anything because you weren't spending enough time in school. And so it wasn't just the kids that you were overhearing mm-hmm. and the kids bullying you. Yes, it was also the teachers and the adults, and they felt that because I missed school, I didn't have enough intelligence. I wasn't smart enough, and they said, "We still do, you know, still do what we can," and that was it. And I knew I was smart. I knew I had so much more potential than they were leading me to believe. But hearing that, also like, why bother? Why try? If I'm never going to do anything as an adult, I had trouble getting jobs. I started working in business right after high school. I wanted to be a secretary, like my mother. And I couldn't even get a job as a secretary because a company said, we don't want you as a receptionist because of how you look and how you talk. And even as a secretary, just the whole physical appearance came into play. So it was very hard for me to get a job. And that also affected my self-worth and my sense of self and my self-confidence. And looking at your pictures through the years, I have to say, 
I just, the fact that somebody would have looked at you and said that to me even is mind boggling because mm-hmm. you're not a monster. You've never been a monster. And the fact that, oh, it makes me so angry. <laughs> Sorry, I said I was going to get emotional. I'm just getting pissed off. And of course, being affected with your self-worth, you said also in in some of the things I've read that you didn't date until you were in your 20s. That is definitely true. In high school, all my high school girlfriends were dating, going to forum. I was having boyfriends. I didn't have anybody. And no no boys wanted to go out with me. Instead, they would tease me and make fun of me. And Tell me things like, I don't want to kiss your lips. I'm going to get the cooties that you have, or you're not going to be a good kisser, or any number of things. Because boys didn't find me attractive or want to go out with me. I put that upon myself to also believe that I wasn't attractive. And really had the belief that I was never going to meet anybody. No, it wasn't until in my 20s that I started dating. And even then, it was through dating app or dating, dating services. Dating apps didn't exist back then. Actually, predating myself, but it was through dating services because I always held the belief that Nobody's going to want to go out with me. Nobody's going to find me attractive enough. I didn't have anything to offer anybody. So even that was very difficult. Yes. As far as your education, I know you've gone on to have a PhD, have a PhD, (laughs) work really hard and get a PhD. But how did the career path and the PhD and everything go? And how did it fit in with your personal life? (laughs) That's a really great question. So I, after high school, I went on to college. I got a two-year degree working in business and as a secretary, I worked in business for a couple of years, but I always wanted to learn more. I'm just a lifelong learner, but I'm terrible at math, horrible at math. And that is definitely true. That's not, he told me I was horrible at math, but I also learned along the years, that is not my my strong point. That's not so your I, self-worth talking. That's just the fact. <laughs> okay. But I always wanted to go back to school and get a bachelor's degree. You needed that math, so it never happened. To make a long story short, I met my now ex-husband, but I met my husband then. And he started a business selling accounting software. And I, we got married. I helped him support the business. And he told and he said it would be great to have someone on staff that knows accounting and Accounting of one things I'm horrible at math, but <laughs> he believed in me. He says, he can get you through that with a tutor and I can help you with math and things are different now. So I went back to school, got my bachelor's in accounting, struggled through math, but got help from my sister who knew algebra and statistics better than I did. And after that, I realized I loved learning. I loved accounting because of the organization and the detail part of it, went on to get my master's degree with the intent of becoming a CPA. Realized that I loved learning and teaching. I became a peer tutor. I decided to shut the girl because she had to go for the teaching path. So I continued on to get my PhD so I could actually teach accounting, which is how I ended up with that. Struggled with math a lot during my PhD when I needed those statistics classes. I, I really did struggle, but I also learned Learn my learning style and how to get around it and realize that my problem with math was not that I had the inability to know it, but just how I approached it, how I learned it. So much irony, though, in like, I'm really not good at math. And people told me I wouldn't amount to anything. So I got my PhD in accounting. <laughs> so I could well, teach I accounting. Always, <laughs> I always felt like growing up, I always wanted to be a doctor or a nurse. I eat needles, but again, I know the irony, but I brings even a needle on TV and one of those medical shows, I can't stand needles, but I love helping people. So I used to tell my students, instead of being a medical doctor, I realized my dream of becoming a doctor. I'm just an academic doctor now. Yeah. But I love teaching. I love helping people. I love giving back. 
I do think because my sister was hit by a car and was very badly injured when we were kids. And because she spent time around the doctors and the nurses, she was really for a long time, like, I think more than anything, physical therapy, because she had a physical therapist that she really Mm -hmm. admired. And I do think there's something probably to that as well, when you saw how many people were hopefully helping you. And it it is, I want to give that back. Yes. As someone who's not necessarily best at math myself, I have to say the idea of somebody who struggled with it and then ultimately learns how to do it a different way, learns how to go about it a different way, sounds like a great teacher. Thank you. Yeah, that was the one thing when I realized that little trick was like, okay, I just need to figure it out differently, look at it differently, ask for help and not give up. That was really the key that helped me get over my obstacles. And I joke with my students that I'm still bad at math. I need my trust calculator. But I look at it more as a puzzle and a challenge that I can overcome this. And nowadays, there's so many more resources. There's websites. There's tools to ask for help. So that's been also taught me resilience and determination that nothing is ever out of your reach. You just want to keep at it, keep moving forward, and keep trying. And with your marriage, you did say your ex-husband. But despite him being supportive of you doing the accounting thing, it didn't Mm-hmm. Obviously, he's an ex, but I know on your website, you said something about an abusive marriage. So mm-hmm. was it, tell me as much or as little as you like, but was it something physical or was it just taking advantage of the fact that your self-worth was really low? It was a little bit, it was physical and emotional, verbal, mental. So it was basically everything abusive. I married him because I didn't think I was going to meet anybody else. And that was really good. You know, I remember my wedding day sitting in the limo. My mother asked, are you sure you want to do this? And the little voice in your head that kind of questions it was really screaming, no, you don't want to do this. But the other voice in me was saying, he's the only one that really got serious after all these, you know, a couple of years of dating. And I was already 27 and or I think 28 by the time I got married. And I was like, what else do I have? I didn't exactly have a line of men down my door. And so, yeah, a lot of it was the self-worth. But he was a very difficult man to live with. He had a lot of anger issues. He had a lot of issues himself that he had to resolve. He was narcissistic. And so it was difficult being married to him. But I always thought part of my upbringing was that a marriage is for life. It's commitment. You make it work. You compromise yourself. And a lot of it was also my lack of self-worth. And realizing that I have someone that's going to take care of me that cares about me in a certain way. Better than nothing. Better than being alone. That's what I always told myself. Unfortunately, I lost myself. I lost who I was. I didn't, I had no identity. Everything was revolved around him, our lives, what he was doing, supporting his business, supporting him. That's why he wanted me to get my degree because it would ultimately help him and his business. And I'm grateful for that because the degree gave me a life outside of that, especially when I did divorce him. I actually had that to fall back on and give me a career. And something that I love, but it was very difficult. And a lot of that was definitely tied to my self-worth. And what did it take to finally, I, there's, it's twofold. What did mm-hmm. it take to get you out of that marriage? And then to finally be able to speak about being cleft affected. It was actually an accident. And I like to say it was destiny and fate or God that stepped in and basically saved me. I used to ride motorcycles at the time. I was going to go up to visit my sister. She lived about five hours away going to be a girl's only, sister's only weekend. I was riding my motorcycle to see her. About two miles from her house, I got into a motorcycle accident and flipped over a couple of times. Fortunately, the worst that happened was that I broke my wrist. I was able to walk away from it. And I needed physical therapy. I also needed three surgeries to repair 
my wish. Because I was five hours away, I was in an area where they had great medical, most doctors, physical therapists, walking theaters, everything I needed. Where I lived back home was a very rural part that didn't, I would have to drive an hour just to get to the nearest hospital. Physical therapy would have been another hour and I needed it every day. And then being home with my ex, I knew recovery would not be possible. So at the time I told my ex, I'm going to stay with my sister, recover, get the surgeries, get the physical therapy. After about two months, and ironically, it was in November that this happened about 11 years ago now. After about two months, I realized I was happier being away from him. By the time I had the accident, I was pretty much brainwashed. I realized there was no out. I knew I needed to leave him, but I didn't know how. I didn't think it was possible. But that separation and that distance, I realized I was happier without him. And I realized that there is an there may be an option. At the time, I really didn't realize it, but I knew I was happy. So long story short, I talked to my sister. I told her I felt helpless that I was happier without him. She kind of encouraged me to go for therapy, which I did. And that gave me the strength to really, to leave him, to open my eyes and realize that this is it. I need to leave him if I want to have a future because if I stayed with him, I knew it was going to end up very tragically. It was about five or six years of me working on myself, building the confidence, going through the divorce. It was a long, drawn out divorce, really building, setting those boundaries, realizing myself more. And about five years later, now five years ago, my mother passed away. Her death hit me really hard. And I talk about this in my TED talk. Her death hit me hard because she was my advocate. She was the only person that really knew and understood what I was going through with a cleft lip. And I could always talk to her because she was like my medical backers. So when she died, I felt completely alone. Even though I was feeling better about myself, it was still like my lifeline was gone. And nobody knew me what I was going through. So in the act of desperation and kind of being depressed, I searched Facebook for a cleft lip and palate. And that's when I found a group of cleft-affected adults. It was there's only adults, not parents, it's only that little safe place. I joined the group. I started posting. I started being more active. And that's when I really started to open up and talk about myself as having a class, share with the other adults what we were going through, the joys of, you know, being able to blow up a balloon and not blow up a balloon. We were having a bad time of getting down, just having that uh, connection and sharing with someone. From there, I got involved with Smile Train, which is an organization that creates a support club community, and they perform surgeries in third world countries to people like children with a cleft lip and palate. So then looking for volunteers to help strengthen the community, I joined them, and I realized this is where I'm meant to be. This is my path, my destiny, is to give back in that way, the advocacy work, to share my story, and to help support and strengthen others. And to share what I've learned about building my own confidence and building my own voice, figuring out who I am. Yeah, I mean, as much as being born with a cleft lip and palate shouldn't define you, it definitely has shaped. You said you felt like you didn't really have a childhood. There was so much. So to force yourself to deny it for so long, it must have felt like such a breath of fresh air to just say, wow, there's there there are other people that are feeling the same way and this is who I am. This doesn't define me, but this has defined so much of my life. Exactly, yes. So I always say that my cleft lip and palate is not my identity. My identity is who I am as a teacher, as a person that got an animal lover, an entrepreneur. That's who I am. That's my identity. 
but my self-development panel has definitely contributed to shape me and help me become the person I am today. And so when I had the opportunity to join Smile Train as a volunteer and work on their committee and help spread awareness and build the community, it was definitely, as you said, a breath of fresh air. It was like, okay, finally, the cleft community and people with the cleft power are getting the recognition we deserve, we need. We're raising that awareness and we're helping to educate the public about this birth difference so that we feel less alone. Because that's really all we want is we just want to feel connected. We want to feel less isolated. And that's all anybody wants. And it's just such a shame when people treat you in a way that makes it not possible to feel that way. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really interesting. Smile Train, they're working in 90 some countries now. Yes. Is that? And a lot of them less developed countries, as much as we still have a lot to learn in America and the UK, there, I feel like from both a medical and a social perspective, there's even more to learn in the places Smile Train's working. Absolutely, yes. So I was fortunate enough in 2021, I visited Nairobi, Kenya with Smile Train, some of the Smile Train staff and some other blood affected adults and Smile Train supporters. And again, one thing that I learned is how rooted in culture, how rooted in niche and supernatural their culture was about baby born with a cleft on the palate. There are so many myths and mythology the work of the devil, it's the mother had sex under a full moon, so many different things out there. And all of the children I met, I mean, their families were outcast from their community. I met a 16-year-old girl who basically couldn't even go to school because she was bullied and just not even wanted. Young baby whose father reminded me of my own father of how he had trouble accepting his son who was born with the cleft. Mothers, and even in the U- U.S. and the U.K., mothers that blame themselves for their babies being born by the class. And yes, yeah, so education is very much needed throughout the world and not just in developed countries, but the undeveloped countries. The biggest takeaway I had when I visited Nairobi was just how, I guess, primitive and how basic everything is and how fortunate we are in the States and in the U.K. to have the technical medical advancements that we have. In those countries, they don't even have that, which is what Smile Train does. They train the doctors in those areas to perform these surgeries so that anybody with a cleft can get it closed and get the help they need so they don't have to live their life with an unrepaired cleft. And we're talking about the U.S. and the U.K. being more advanced in medically and things like that. But one of the things I know you've spoken out about is the Wendy Williams episode that you saw where she was making fun of Joaquin Phoenix and mm-hmm. basically almost used the H word, which mm-hmm. I have to say is not a word that I personally would choose, but I didn't know quite you know, the reasons behind why people have used it throughout time and why it's so derogatory until I was on your Yes. So the H word, and you know, I'm okay saying it is, and it's actually a term that was rooted in culture uh, growing up. It was a term I heard all the time. Doctors even used it to refer to my class. And at the time, it hurt me because it felt like a label. I never understood why they used it or where it originated from. When I got older, I started doing some research, and it's actually rooted in mythology of way back one mythology of if i remember correctly the sun asking a rabbit to do her bidding the rabbit forbade the sun i might have the story a little bit long but it's something along that line when that rabbit disobeyed the sun he's striking down and as a result let his lip giving him a 
fuck up. And then that's where the term came because he would go hand, so he had a hell up, and then the terms kind of stuck. But it was a term that many in the club community was called as derogatory. It was uh, used in bullying. It was used, like I said, for me, it was used in bullying. Doctors used it. At one point, it was acceptable. Now it's not anymore. And so Wendy Williams on her show, I think just we brought it back, when she made fun of white being penis. And that was very hurtful, especially someone in her position of being a social influencer. We actually have a rule in many of the Facebook groups I'm in that we don't use that more than all. We don't refer to it. But every now and then there is a new member in the group or a new person with a clock that doesn't realize what that word is or why it's so bad. Because much like me, they would, they grew up hearing it. I heard it all the time. I, until I joined the Facebook groups and heard other people's stories and even my own myself as, yeah, I heard it, but I just thought in the hell would ever show it. It didn't bother me until I really realized that, yeah, it's uncomfortable and just a bad word that nobody wants to hear. And again, that's another thing that I think the more people know about, obviously, that, the more awareness that you can spread, then it won't happen. But until mm-hmm. people know, people are ignorant until they know. Exactly. Absolutely. So you've gone on. Not only have you now embraced speaking about being cleft affected, but you have gone on to help other people that have struggled in similar ways or with their own self-worth. So tell me a bit about that. <laughs> Absolutely. Over the years, after having learned everything that I've learned about building my own self-confidence, I decided to become a confidence and transformation coach to help other adults with a cleft power or other facial difference build their own confidence, overcome the challenges that they face and reach their goals in life. And so now I work with the adults. I help them overcome anxiety, learn about setting boundaries, setting with other people, building that social confidence, which is such a big issue with someone with a facial difference. I mean, I remember the biggest thing for me is my social anxiety, not wanting to talk to people. So I teach my clients how to do that. I work with them. I help them reach their goals, whether it's going for their dream job or just going out and wanting to date and meet new people and having the confidence to go out and meet people or just have confidence to go out and just be in public. And I love working with clients. I love being a coach and helping them realize their dreams. And you must be such an inspiration to them with your own stories and having been TEDx talk. I mean, as somebody who was going through speech therapy for so much of your life and then to be able to go on and give a speech at TEDx mm-hmm. and to mm-hmm. come on podcasts and tell your story. That must feel like that's another thing that people were like, you're not going to be able to do it. And here you are. To be totally honest, if you would have told me about five or six years ago before my mother passed away, what I would be doing now that I was going to give a TED talk. I don't want to get too sidetracked, but giving a TED talk was always my bucket list item. I just never thought it would be on a subject so personal and vulnerable as growing up with a graphic palette. I always used to tell myself, and I'm going to give a TED talk about maybe a teaching concept or being a teacher or learning how I overcame math or something like that. Um, but if you would have told me five years ago, I would have given a TED talk about personal empowerment and growing up and then being on podcasts and being the advocate, I would have never believed you. I, w- I was still in denial and I would have said, no way I got the confidence to be able to talk about it so openly. And there was still so much shame I had. So, yes, there is, I do feel a sense of pride looking back on where I came from and remembering who I was with all of that shame. But I've come a long way and that. Like I said, that doesn't define me. It just becomes part of who I am, part of my history book. And now I look to the future. 
I have to say, just hearing that, I think about your mom must be so proud of wherever she is. I don't know what your beliefs are. She would be or is so proud of you. I hope she is. I like to think that she is. Growing up, she never, I had a very difficult relationship with her. I think that because she was unable to handle the emotional side of my classmate and palate. We were never close emotionally. She wasn't the mother that I needed or wanted, but she was my advocate. If there was anything about her, she fought for me medically. I remember many times I would hear her arguing with doctors about what I needed, making sure I had the best care, making sure that there was no other options. They were, the, they were doing the best they can, but emotionally, she wasn't there for me. So I never knew how, if she was happy for me, if she, how she saw my accomplishment. But I do, I like to think that she is proud of me now, looking down on me and just realizing what I did and feeling that such pride as well. So many women that I've spoken with about their life changes, because there's been such an interesting array of life and career changes. But of course, what people talk about most when I ask them about advice they would give or what inspired the change or what have you comes down to confidence. And as you Mm -hmm. have grown so much in confidence and now you're helping other people to be confident, what's your advice? My advice would be to believe in yourself and Find a support system. Find the people that do believe in you and that will help you and support you. Anything is possible if you can work toward it. There's never anything that's out of your reach. And you do have the strength within you. You have the power to accomplish your dreams. And it's going to be hard work. It'll take small steps. You can definitely do it. You were never born with more than you can handle, even though it may feel like that at times. Just one step at a time, small little baby steps, and never give up. That's really good advice for me. I'm such an impatient person. When people say small baby steps, I'm like, yes, that is the thing I always need to remember because I'm always ready for more, ready to bite off more than I can chew. Mm -hmm. I need to remember the baby steps. Mm -hmm. I'm the same way also where I'm very impatient. And sometimes I feel like I just work hard enough. I just put enough into it, I'll get it. And what I've learned over time, a lot of it is timing. Like I said earlier, years ago, I was not in a position to do what I'm doing today. And I don't know where I'll be in five years and I hope I'll be continuing this work, but I don't have a crystal ball, but it comes down to timing. If you want something and you're not getting it, it just means that it wasn't the right time or it wasn't your path, but doesn't mean that you have to give up. Just keep working at it and you'll find what you're meant to be and what your destiny is. Yeah, I definitely believe that there are Like you said, it's not your path. We can start down one path. Obviously, it's the whole point of this podcast, but you can start down (laughs) one path. And there are a lot of branches. So, you know, eventually you're going to find the branch that's going to take you where you need to be, which it definitely sounds like you have. It did for me. I thought I was going to spend the rest of my life being an accounting professor, teaching, but that's what I was going to retire from because I love teaching. I love working as a professor. But what I'm finding is that's not where I'm meant to be. My path is meant to be doing my advocacy work and giving back and inspiring and coaching others. And I'm okay with that because it's also what I love doing. And it's just kind of like going with the flow. Definitely. And it, you, I mean, just hearing you talk about it, it seems like it makes you so happy and smile train and everything else. So I'm really happy you found it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I am very happy. I, I, I just, I love what I'm doing now. And did you bring a quote for me today? I absolutely did. Yes. One of my favorite quotes, everybody who knows me knows that I love 
butterflies. So my favorite quote is that the butterfly does not look back at the caterpillar in shame. This is you should not look back at your past in shame. Your past is part of your own transformation to become that butterfly. I love it. And it's absolutely true. One of the things that I've learned too is that growing up, I had so much shame. I still struggle with shame about how I look and who I was. I tried not to beat myself up over getting married when I knew I shouldn't have gotten married or just the shame over my appearance. And what I realized is that was all part of my journey. It's what gave me the strength and the resilience and the determination to be who I am today to help me get through that PhD when I hit the walls and the obstacles and to get through so many other challenges in my life. In my 19th and 20th surgery, when my bone graft from my dental implants failed and they said, we got to read you our whole treatment plan and read you our whole structure for your implants. And I thought I just went for a bone graft and six months of healing with no teeth. And now you're telling me it's not usable. And just having that resilience and determination is what got me through. And if I stay stuck looking at the past and holding on to that shame, I would not be who I am today. And it's just it's all part of who we are. Like I said, like the caterpillar has to be that ugly caterpillar, but they die, they turn into goo, and they become a beautiful butterfly. We all have that within us to do the same thing. And when you talk about some of the things like beating yourself up or now not beating yourself up about, for example, going into a marriage that you knew mm-hmm. wasn't right, you said something about you were already 28, which in your mind, you were already 28. Mm-hmm. But now looking back, how young is 28? <laughs> that moment, that moment half of my life now. I'm two now, so that was a little bit one and halfway, half, halfway to my life now. And it's so incredibly young. And if I can go back and tell my younger self, it's okay to be single, especially in the 80s and the 90s, that being single is, you know, horrible. That sentence, can't be single. And so I would tell myself, you know what? It's okay to be single. Take care of yourself. Put yourself first because your happiness is what matters above everything else. And had I known now what I known then, I wouldn't have gotten married. I would have pushed back against social cultures and beliefs of getting married. But then again, if I did, I may not have had the life I had and learned the things I did and become the person I am today. Like I said, I look back with reflection and to aware and educate, but not with shame or to really hold on to it. What would you say to your future self? Oh, my future self, that's hard. Just keep positive, keep doing what you're doing and trust that everything's going to work out for a reason, even when it may seem like it doesn't. And just keep following your heart, follow your instinct. Amazing. And because it was difficult, that means I also think you're really living in the present, which of course is the best way to live. Thank you. Yeah, it's hard to do that many times, but I've been doing a lot of, like I said, all the work on myself learning to live in the present, learning to practice a lot of mindfulness, managing my anxiety. And I realized that's the best way to live is just right here and now and following what I feel like I want to do in the present moment. I'm really happy that you found this present moment. And I'm so thankful that you've come to join me. It's been really wonderful to talk to you. And like I said, I'm really keen to, to spread the word, make people more aware of everything you've talked about, really, whether it's confidence or cleft affected. I will definitely put all of the information that you've given me in the show notes so people can learn more. And thank you for making me and so many people aware and changing people's lives. Thank you so much, Christian, for having me. I really enjoyed chatting with you and helping to educate your audience as well.
Thank you. And have a wonderful 2023. Yes, the same to you and me. Year and me time to do everything and reach your goals. Thank you. Thank you again. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, tell a friend, follow us on Instagram and sign up for the second chapter newsletter. The second chapter is brought to you by Slackline Productions, a production company dedicated to redressing the balance of women's stories being told and who's telling them with a specific focus on women 35 plus. You can find us at the secondchapterpodcast.com and slacklineproductions.co.uk. Thanks again.